Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is And That's The Way It Was for September 4th, 2018. Today's episode is a little bit of a milestone, a momentous event, if you will, in the history of this podcast. We are welcoming back our first returning guest. Uh, I'm going to be speaking on the phone in a couple of minutes here with Alex Thurston. Uh, Alex, if you recall, is a professor at Miami University of Ohio who specializes in the Sahel. He was on the show a few weeks back to talk about Nigeria. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about Mali. Uh, I want to preface this interview by saying that uh, we recorded this several days ago. In fact, last week, at the end of last week, uh, and... Uh, because, you know, like the holiday weekend with Labor Day and everything got in, the, got in the way and it made logistics difficult. So we decided to just get it done uh, last Friday. Uh, so if I, I load this up on Tuesday and in the interim, uh, something has like World War Three has broken out over Mali and there's chaos in the streets or something like that. Uh, just understand that the reason we're not talking about that in this interview is because none of that has happened yet. Hopefully things will remain relatively stable. Uh, over the next four or five days until until you guys uh, listen to this. But just in case, uh, please understand that we're recording this well ahead of time, which I don't usually like to do. Uh, But in this case, uh, it just wouldn't have worked out any other way. Okay, uh, I'm here again with Alex Thurston, returning interview subject, my first one. Uh, Congratulations and thank you, Alex, for being here. (laughs) Thanks for having me. (laughs) Uh, Everybody, I hope, uh, has listened to the episode that uh, Alex was on a a few weeks back where we talked about Nigeria. Uh, Today he's going to school us a little bit about Mali. Uh, So, again, uh, thanks, Alex, and and welcome back to the show. Thanks. Thanks. Glad to be back. So, my first question for you uh, is going to be rooted in my own ignorance about Molly, basically, and it may be kind of a deep cut. Uh, but we talked a little bit when we were talking about Nigeria, about how the way that Nigeria was constructed as a nation state contributes to somewhat to its instability in the different conflict areas around the country. Uh, I want to ask the same question, basically, about Mali, um, and talk if you could talk about the way Mali, as it currently exists, was put together, and how that corresponds with, say, the Mali Empire or uh, you know its successor states, because it seems to me that, uh, and obviously this is uh, only semi, if that, educated <laughs> view, but it seems like the northern part of the country, like Timbuktu and that region, the the more Tuareg part of the country, is oriented seems to be like oriented more toward algeria and morocco and then the rest of the country is kind of oriented more toward the sahel and i'm wondering if uh you know that's maybe part of the 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 root of uh some of the tensions in mali or if i'm just rambling no i I think this is a crucially important dimension i mean you know mali was mali was a french colony i mean put together as, as you know, by the French starting in the, you know, late 19th century as part of a broader series of, of conquests and agreements that they, you know, made in, in West Africa. Um, you know, 
know, and the, but the country was put together in different ways, as, as you point out. I mean, you know, through through conquest, it really unfolded over a period of, of, you know, decades. And then by the time they got to the far north of the country, you know, the part where, you know, the, the main Tuareg-led rebellions have broken out, um, they were, in some sense, making, you know, making deals more than they were, you know, actively military con- militarily conquering the far north of the country. I mean, definitely they had, you know, military expeditions there and so forth. Um, but in part, they were making deals with different kinds of, you know, tribal confederations and so forth. Some some groups, including the, the you know, Tuareg Confederation that has been behind most of the recent rebellions, um, they were making deals with the French in part because they were afraid of other, you know, confederations and, and groups in the region. In terms of the part of your question about you know, splits between the north and the south and, and the north looking more toward Algeria in particular. I think that's definitely right. I mean, right from the beginning, almost, you know, early 20th century, um, there was a bit of hesitation on the part of the French about whether to attach the far north of Mali to, you know, what was at the time called French Sudan, a.k.a. present-day Mali, or whether to attach that region to Algeria. Um, and they went with Mali, but then even the, the kind of uh, ambivalence over this resurfaced in a way in the 1950s when the French talked in fairly vague terms about setting up uh, kind of a, a you know uh, they called it something like the, the the organization of you know Saharan regions or, or creating even a kind of a, a Saharan country or a Saharan band. I, I think that some of the people on the ground, you know, people in what became Mali took that a bit more seriously than maybe the French themselves did. But in any case, right up until Mali became independent in 1960, there was a bit of kind of uh, hesitation on, on the part of France about where the boundaries were going to be drawn exactly um, and how the North was going to fit into to Mali. And then, too, you have, you know, a long, long history of of the regions being oriented in different ways and, and honestly, of, of people thinking of differences in, in terms of race. I mean, there's an excellent book by, by Bruce Hall, which I think talks about the title, right? It's called The, you know, the History of Race. In, in, um, I think it's called The History of Race in West Africa. I'll have to look up the exact title. But, you know, basically he makes the point that Tuareg and Arabs in the region thought of themselves as white, and a lot of them were extremely opposed to the idea of being ruled by people they defined as black. Uh, and some of that uh, kind of racial thinking lasts up until the present. So, if I'm if I'm I'm going to do another one of these things where I, I talk and I'm not sure if I'm right, but it seems uh, when we're talking, if we're going to talk about extremist groups, and without getting too far into like the current situation where you've got uh, ISIS in the Greater Sahara, and you've got this uh, Al Qaeda affiliated group called Nusrat al Islam. Um, the history of the infiltration of this this uh, kind of jihadi movements into Mali uh, seems to have two sources. Maybe if if uh, maybe there's more, uh, but one of them is Algeria and and Al Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb kind of filtering south into the Sahel, and then the other, which kind of triggered a lot of these groups to form, it seems like was the the Tuareg rebellion in 2012. I wonder if you could talk about those factors and and any other factors that are that are at play. Uh, you know, yeah, kind of I mean I, I, again, you know, I, I think the the question touches on on some of the key factors. I mean, it'd be probably a whole, you know, episode of the podcast 
Holocaust to go through the Algerian Civil War oh, God, and, and yeah. the ways that... <laughs> More than one, maybe. <laughs> yeah, multiple, and we, you know, and there's still, obviously, you know, tremendous disputes about what even happened in the Algerian Civil War, but, um, you know, to kind of do a shorthand, I mean, the, the groups that AQIM or Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb, the groups that they grew out of formed in the context of the Civil War. At one point, you know, in the mid-90s, some of those groups were really kind of the dominant players in the Civil War, but by the late 1990s, the Algerian state had, had marginalized them and they had marginalized themselves by, you know, acting with extreme brutality against civilians. So by the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, AQIM, or, or what became AQIM, was, was kind of looking for a new foothold, and that led them to, to turn in a way toward the Sahara. I mean, they had always had units who operated in the Sahara. I mean, the most famous or infamous person, you know, Mokhtar Ba Mokhtar from, from southern Algeria, and yeah. somebody who was operating in northern Mali by, you know, the, the late 1990s, or early 2000s. So, you know, but there was... So they were losing out in Algeria in a way, but they also saw opportunities in the Sahara. I mean, one, kidnapping Europeans, um, and that's been extremely well documented, of course. And, and, you know, the estimates are that at least they raised something like, you know, $91 million through, you know, ransoms that European governments paid. Also, they were attracted by smuggling, and there it's a bit harder to sort out the evidence, but it does seem that... AQIM or, or what became AQIM became involved in, you know, protecting smugglers and even in, in doing some smuggling themselves. And then also Northern Mali was, uh, you know, after a while, a, a demilitarized zone, a zone where there were multiple different armed factions, you know, some of which eventually in 2012 uh, became receptive to working with AQIM. And this gets back to all kinds of, you know, extremely convoluted local politics in, in Northern Mali. Uh, but basically the 2012, you know, they had, they had built, AQM had built a kind of an infrastructure, had made a good deal of money, had made a lot of local partners, and then when 2012 came along, they were positioned to be kind of a, a supporting actor in, in the rebellion, and even by the middle of 2012 to, to start moving toward the center stage of, of the rebellion and, and helping to control territory in the north. Um, t- yeah, so... Can we talk a little bit about, um, I mean, Mokhtar Ba Mokhtar is the, the most interesting uh, character in this story. He's, I, I always uh, almost get kind of a morbid kick out of like the way he left AQIM after they dinged him for not keeping expense reports or something, like some <laughs> lame bureaucratic thing that got him kicked out of AQIM. But he's, uh, you know, been around for a long time, maybe dead now. There's been like multiple times that he's been uh, sort of quote unquote confirmed dead only to rise again. Um, and he, he broke away from AQIM and then, uh, formed his own group, which then merged. But it's it's kind of a it's a convoluted path that gets you to where Al Qaeda is in Mali today. Can you talk a little bit about all these groups that kind of formed and then joined together at different times and how they relate to one another? Sure. So, you know, as of as of twenty eleven, as as sort of the storm clouds were gathering for. This, this rebellion in the north, which which we should mention, you know, was was really the fourth major rebellion led by Tuareg in the post-colonial period. So the 2012 didn't, rebellion definitely didn't come out of nowhere. But in any case, in 2011, AQIM was, you know, was already there on the ground. 
They had even in that year though a, a group break off from them, which which is called basically Mujwa, which which we could say the the movement for unity and jihad in West Africa, or, or the movement for monotheism and jihad in West Africa. Um, the initial kind of analysis was that this group Mujwa was made up of of basically black fighters who were were tired of being. Um, you know, led by uh, Algerians and, and you know, being in a sort of a secondary position within AQIM. Over time, it seemed, you know, the more evidence about, about who they were came out, the picture got a lot more complicated, and it looked like, you know, in part they were uh, in, in concert with certain local businessmen in northern Mali and, and with drug traffickers and so forth. And so, you know, even to the present, there's kind of a question about what, what really was. But in any case, it broke off from AQIM, but then when the 2012 rebellion started, Mujwa and AQIM still continued to, to work together, particularly once jihadist forces had taken control of, of northern Mali. Um, both AQIM and, and Mujwa were on the scene. Then, toward the end of um, 2012, that's when you have what you what you were mentioning about this dispute between Bamokhtar, who was a major Saharan commander for AQIM, the dispute between him and and the overall leadership of the group, um, and that concerned, as you said, you know, bureaucratic disputes. It concerned disputes over strategy. So Bamokhtar was pushing for kind of big, spectacular military attacks and was frustrated with some of the kind of pace of things. Um, there was also basically a direct sort of you know challenge of from Belmokhtar about the, about the central leadership's competence and, and aggressiveness and so forth. So he broke off uh, with his group um, of fighters called the, the Veiled Men Battalion. And then by 2013, he had, he had linked up basically with Mujwa, um, you know, and there's all kinds of complicated sort of local dynamics at play. But in any case, for, you know, about two years, uh, 2013 to 2015, Bamokhtar's group and this Mujwa fought together as, as something called Murabitun, which is a name borrowed from a, a medieval Muslim empire in, in basically Mauritania and southern Morocco. Um, then, by the end of 2015, they had reintegrated Bamokhtar and, and his Murabitun group back into AQIM. Uh, then, as you also mentioned, you know, Bamokhtar was reported killed multiple times. Um, but when he was reported killed at the, you know, in, in 2016, he was he was supposedly killed by a French airstrike in in northeastern Libya. Uh, he hasn't been seen or, or hasn't appeared in public since that time. So it's really um, quite possible that he's dead. And and at least, you know, in some sense, uh, if he's alive, he's he's quite possibly, you know, recuperating or or deeply injured or in, in some other way not on the scene. So the latest kind of formation then has been. You know, as uh, violence has continued in, in northern Mali, as the jihadists continue to have a presence there, um, they have put a Malian national named Yara Ghali at the center of this formation called called JNIM, or, or the group for um, supporting Islam and Muslims. Uh, they've put Yara Ghali at the head of that, and that's basically now the Saharan uh, formation for AQIM. Um, you know, subordinate to them, but but with a profile of its own and, and with a major presence in, in northern Mali and in central Mali and to some extent in the neighboring countries. Right, and that that group is a merger of Morabitun and two other groups, right? There's Ansardine, which is a Tuareg group, I think, uh, and which Yadagali was leading. Yep. Uh, and then there's uh, 
something called the Messina Liberation Front. Um, I wanted to ask you about them because, uh, well, and and uh, talk about Ansardine also if you want. But I, I was curious about uh, the Messina Liberation Front just because of their name, because it implies a, a some kind of a separatist uh, movement. And Messina is like the the region in this sort of central part of Mali. Uh, are there other separatist movements in Mali besides the Tuareg movement in the north that are that contribute to uh, sort of violence and, and extremism? Yeah, so I mean, you know, as the question indicates, there's just a tremendous amount going on here. So, you know, the main kind of separatism in, in Mali has been, has been, you know, Tuareg-led northern Mali and separatism, and, and it's worth pointing out that, you know, the north Sometimes it's seen in, in the media, and, you know, even scholars will talk about it as though it's kind of a uniformly Tuareg zone, but there's a lot of other people who live there, um, Arabs, uh, you know, Songhai, um, uh, other kinds of, you know, Fulani, other ethnic groups that live in the north, and not all of those people have been, you know, uh, supporters or partisans of this kind of vision of, of independence for what the Tuareg, or what certain segments of the Tuareg will call Azawad. Um, so even in the north, there's not this consensus for separatism. And then in the center, you know, this, this name, Messina Liberation Front, caught on for a long time. And, and, you know, I had used it when I wrote about it. But when I was in Mali a couple times earlier this year, um, a lot of the people I talked to really said they never called themselves by that name. Um, they're not, you know, they don't kind of talk about uh, liberating Messina, that it's more just sort of, um, that they called themselves the Messina Battalion or something like that. So I think, okay. and, and I've seen some of the, you know, statements by the, the leader of the group, and he doesn't necessarily, he still talks about himself as Malian in some basic way, um, which is even kind of odd, because jihadists, at least theoretically, sort of reject, um, you know, even the construction of nation-states. Um, but yeah, this, I mean... You know, this name Messina is the name of, of a pre-colonial, you know, 19th century Muslim empire that was that was roughly in central Mali. And so the name evokes all kinds of uh, associations and, and emotions for Mali, uh, or for Malians. And the, you know, whatever we call it, the, the jihadists that have, the jihadist group that's been active in central Mali um, has turned that region upside down. I mean, you know, has chased out a lot of the state officials or, or cowed a lot of the other you know, local state officials in the submission, the, the violence in central Mali, you know, uh, sometimes exceeds that in the north. And so, in a way, it's, you know, with attention still focused a lot of times on the north, the center has sometimes really been the overlooked, you know, crisis in the country. Um, okay, I, maybe we could talk a little more about that uh, in a couple of questions here but um if you could kind of talk in uh, general terms i guess about the state of uh extremist movements in mali now i know there's jan i am which is affiliated with al-qaeda uh, but there's also isis in the greater sahara which operates in mali and niger uh, and is i think maybe was based on a, a splinter group that broke off from al Marabitun and pledged exactly. its allegiance yeah. to ISIS, and Belmokhtar said, uh, no, we're, we're, we won't be, we shan't be doing that. Uh, exactly. And so they kind of broke away. 
Um, and and there's another group that I know uh, in the north called Ansar Sharia, which also has some Al Qaeda links, but is Arab primarily. It's not Tuareg. Um, but I don't I don't know if they're affiliated with JNIM or not. Uh, can you talk about sort of the 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 way the landscape looks now? What are the capabilities of uh, these two groups relative to one another, and um, also, what are you know what kind of activities have they gotten into uh, in terms of things like uh, human trafficking across the Sahel, which has become a big concern, obviously for Europe and uh, drugs. You know, where are they financing themselves? How are they financing themselves? So, I mean, you know, we we alluded a couple times earlier to the the twenty twelve rebellion, so it's, it's worth, I guess, giving just a little bit of, you know, background on that. So the, the 2012 rebellion was initially led by separatists, uh, then was sort of co-opted, to make a long story short, by jihadists, uh, you know, multiple factions of jihadists, including AQIM, and then in 2013, in response to jihadist advances into the center of the country, the French intervened. Um, and as, you know, as has happened in, in other places in the world, in, in Iraq and in Nigeria, elsewhere, um, you know, a Western military can, can drive jihadists out of cities they control. Um, so this is what happened in northern Mali. But as has been the case elsewhere, jihadists retreated into remote areas and then continued to stage attacks. So there's been, you know, even since 2013, a ton of uh, basically guerrilla attacks by different, you know, formations targeting the Malian state, but also targeting the foreign forces. In terms of where things stand now, so you have JNIM, um, you know, which is uh, formally, you know, the, the body that oversees tremendous violence in the north as well as tremendous violence in the center of the country. It's unclear kind of what their end game is. You know, there's, there's been a pretty live debate in Mali about whether Yad Abdali would ever, um, you know, come to the negotiating table as he did in the past in sort of earlier non-jihadist incarnations of his career, uh, or there's, you know, people who feel that he's become a complete, you know, fanatic and would never negotiate. So it's kind of unclear what their end game is or, or whether they just think that they can sort of uh, target and harass the foreign forces until they leave the country and sort of turn Mali over to the jihadists, which seems a bit unlikely. So potentially there's kind of a long-term stalemate there. Then you have, you know, the Islamic State in the in the Greater Sahara, which you mentioned, um, which exactly as you said, was a faction of Al Muqtars Al Murabitun that that went ahead and kind of on their own declared allegiance to the Islamic State in 2015, and were rebuked by Al Muqtar, but then split off and went their own way. Um, they have found ways to, you know, play into ethnic tensions and tensions over resources and grievances among herders in particular on on both sides of the Mali Niger border um, they were the group that claimed responsibility for the um, incident where four American soldiers were killed on on the Niger side of the border in, in 2017 uh, and they've you know been responsible for other cross-border attacks into Niger so but then, you know, and despite the kind of rivalry between al-Qaeda and the Islamic State at the global level, there's been a lot of, you know, reporting and speculation that there's still channels of communication and even cooperation between JNIM and, and the Islamic State in the greater Sahara. So at kind of the local level, um, things seem to be a bit more fluid than, 
you know, than, than the names would suggest. We, is there any link? I mean, I understand geographically they're, they're pretty separate from one another, but has there been any alleged connection between uh, ISIS in the Greater Sahara and ISIS in West Africa, the Boko Haram group, one of the two Boko Haram groups, the one that has official sanction? Like, do they, do they have any connection to one another other than sharing the, the sort of franchise name, or uh, is that it? I haven't seen, you know, big big connections between the two of those. I mean, when people talk about, um, you know, partnerships between Boko Haram and other Islamic State groups, they tend to talk about um, cooperation between Boko Haram and uh, and ISIS in Libya. You know, and even with that, mm-hmm. I'm fairly skeptical. I mean, definitely in the past, there have been fighters, you know, shared back and forth between Nigerian jihadists, or, or I'll say maybe not shared back and forth, but Nigerian jihadists have gone to fight. You know, there was at least one Nigerian fighter with, with Belmokhtar's Morabitun. Um, but beyond kind of those individual instances, I haven't seen much about direct collaboration. So you talked about local grievances, kind of uh, the way that ISIS in the Greater Sahara has used local grievances to recruit and to give itself kind of a, a, a cause to, to fight for. Um, one of those, one of the big ones is, as we talked about when we talked about Nigeria a couple of weeks ago, uh, the, the conflict between Fulani herders and farming peoples and, you know, across the Sahel isn't just confined to Nigeria. It extends through Niger. It extends, uh, into Mali. It's sort of a, a, a regional thing, not, not just confined to one country. Um, and that's one that I've seen, you know, talked about. That's one conflict that I've seen talked about a lot, uh, in reference to ISIS in the greater Sahara and its recruitment patterns and that sort of thing. Um, how is that conflict playing out in Mali? Uh, what, you know, and, and is it, you know, is it as big a factor in, uh, ISIS's development there as, as you tend to see i think in the in the media yeah i mean so you know mali and and nigeria have really become the the hot spots of of conflict involving you know fulani herders as i probably said on the nigeria episode i mean there's some there's some really dangerous ways that the media talks about this you know sometimes suggesting that sort of the fulani as a whole from you know senegal to cameroon have sort of become radicalized and that that's a really ugly kind of basically racism toward the Fulani. And, and so, you know, I think it's worth uh, kind of contextualizing the way that we that we talk about the Fulani. But with that said, in, in central Mali, you know, there's been, I think, you know, for many, many years, all kinds of tensions building up around land and then over the control of land. So, you know, it's, it's a region, obviously, with a growing population and some demographic pressures. Um, it's a region where farmers and herders and fishers compete over resources, especially water. Um, and then it's a region where there are intra-Fulani conflicts that basically come down to the management of land. So um, a lot of, you know, people I met in Mali who are experts on the, on the center would say, you know, that the kind of feeling in the center has been that there are basically rackets, that local authorities will collude with the people who manage pastures to 
charge elevated fees to the herders who want to use those, you know, those lands. Um, and that if people complain or if there are disputes over lands, then it basically comes down to sort of who can pay off the judge or who can pay off the, you know, the mayor or the other kinds of local officials. So even before 2012, for a long time, there was anger building up in the center. And, and one thing that Jadis has done in the center, and maybe to some extent along the borderland, you know, in the case of ISIS and, or, or Islamic State in the Greater Sahara, one thing jihadists have been able to do is to recruit among some of these herders who are angry, you know, or who have grievances, not just among, not just against other ethnic groups, but against kind of social elites within their own ethnic group. Um, and jihadists have been able, obviously, to, you know, give people money to organize violence that allows people to take revenge or to, you know, distribute resources in a way they see as more fair. Um, and then, too, it's worth mentioning that, you know, the extreme violence in Mali, the lack of, you know, state presence on the ground, sometimes the lack of journalists on the ground has sometimes just created this atmosphere um, where people have difficulty sometimes telling who's perpetrating the violence. So the jihadist violence can become a kind of a cover for all sorts of score settling. Then you have bandits on the ground. Uh, so all of this then too kind of feeds into a sense of, of fear and, and the jihadists can benefit from that as well. I wanted to talk about that actually about the the other kinds of violence that maybe um, aren't you know they aren't jihadists but they kind of get uh, lumped in or they're sort of uh, tangential maybe to to uh, that kind of violence and you you've uh, I know I mean I've I've seen on your blog uh, you just did a post about the uh, kind of annotating the UN panel of experts report on Mali. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, there was a section on uh, this government-aligned militia that's involved in drug smuggling. And, uh, like, what, you know, uh, talk a little bit about uh, kind of other groups that are involved in illicit activities and violence. And then also, um, you know, maybe if you could talk about how the military has the the Malian military has responded to uh these groups and you know there are a lot of allegations of human rights violations on their part mm-hmm. and uh you know disappearances and torture and custody and things things like that that um you know in the long run the kinds of things that contribute actually to uh radicalization you know rather than fighting it yeah i mean everything you just named is, is you know, a a part of of a really complicated and a really violent atmosphere. I mean, so you have kind of all sorts of domino effects in a sense. I mean, you know, rebels take up arms against the government, then the government will, uh, you know, back certain militias in part because of its own weakness and the, you know, the thinness of the security forces on the ground. Um, Then some of those government-backed militias become involved in things like, uh, you know, drug trafficking or or trafficking in person and things like that. Um, Then when those militias become involved in trafficking drugs, that can touch off conflicts between different armed groups who are then trying to control um, the drug trade. Then when the Malian state does assert itself, um, sometimes it can be, you know, this has been particularly the case in the center, um, the kinds of abuses that you mentioned, and even the Malian authorities have been starting to admit at the highest levels, you know, some of the, that some of these allegations 
are, you know, are true. I mean, you know, acknowledging that there have been mass graves and things like that discovered. So, um, and then the abuses can push people, you know, into the arms of other armed groups or, or into, you know, the arms of jihadists, basically. Um, so, I mean, one overall challenge for Mali is just trying to find a way out of this, you know, cycle of violence even in some sense the peace process itself, you know, in, in 2015 as, as kind of an effort to, to bring all the things that happened in 2012, to bring that to an end in 2015, they signed an agreement called the Algiers Accord, you know, brokered in the capital of Algeria, obviously. Um, there are three main signatories to the Algiers Accord, a, a coalition of rebel groups from the north, a coalition of pro-government militias from the north, and then the government. Um, as the kind of landscape of armed groups has fragmented, then in a way there are incentives for new groups to use violence because they see some of the rewards of being included in the peace process. So then even the peace process itself kind of creates these perverse incentives uh, for people to, to act violently so that they could possibly be included or, or get some other kind of reward from the state. Um, so really it's become... You know, and, and honestly, I can't. I can't always keep track. I mean, there's there's an alphabet soup of, of groups. You know, there's there's constant kinds of, you know, splintering. You'll see not even just you know one group, but you'll see, um, you know, the Arab movement of Azawad, Wing A, Wing B. You know, and then just schism after schism. You know, oftentimes along ethnic or or tribal lines, but sometimes along personality lines or ideological lines and so forth. So it's really become uh, an extremely convoluted and violent atmosphere one of the ways and we're i want to kind of pull back a little bit to a more regional perspective uh we'll come back to to molly after this question uh but uh one of the the possible ways out of uh, the cycle of violence as you as you say uh has been or one of the proposed ways has been through this uh, G5 Sahel army, essentially, it would be a, there would be a, a regional army uh, with the participation of Burkina Faso, Chad, Mali, Mauritania, and Niger, uh, which has kind of been a, a, a French. It's been like Emmanuel Macron's brainchild, I guess, uh, in a sense. Or I, I don't know if it, there was the kind of the roots of it were. Uh, being talked about before he came to office, but he's really pushed this quite a bit. Yeah. Um, what is the status of the G5 Sahel force? Is it something that you think could actually work? It could actually make a difference in fighting groups like AQIM and uh, JNIM and, and uh, ISIS? Or, uh, you know, is, is it just a... <laughs> yeah, like a, a bureaucratic nightmare and a way to waste money, basically. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been a skeptic about it. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's supposed to draw a battalion from each of those five countries that you've named. It's supposed to focus above all on the, you know, the borderlands, you know, or focus on Mali and then the borderlands around Mali, Niger, Burkina. Um, they've done a couple of, you know, operations within Mali and some exercises and operations in, in some of the other countries as well. Um, but it's been a bit lackluster so far. You know, France has, has been, as you say, the driving force, I think because they're hoping that it could, in the medium term, even be a way for them to get out of, um, to get out of Mali. I mean, 
Mali is not Afghanistan, and it, you know, I think it's really problematic when people um, compare Mali and, and Afghanistan. But the way that the French public is starting to, or, or you know, the French journalists and commentators are starting to talk about it, you know, is, is similar to the way that you know we've had some discussions in the U.S. about about the dilemmas of our role in in Afghanistan. You know, and a lot of people obviously wonder, a lot of French wonder, you know, what are we doing there, and, and you know, especially if this is going so badly. Um, so there's been this kind of you know, hope or, or optimism that this regional force could be a bridge toward a French withdrawal. Um, but I don't think it can fulfill that role. I mean, A, you know, as with other foreign or, or Malian forces, it becomes a target for jihadists. Um, B, the, the operations have been a little bit lackluster. Um, and C, there's all kinds of problems with, you know, coordination. And, and these are five countries with actually very different kinds of interests and leaders and things like that. So keeping them all on the same page is quite possibly too big of a challenge for it to really work. Has it, I don't even, I mean, has it gotten the funding that he, that Macron was hoping it would get, or are they still struggling with that? It, it didn't get the, the UN, you know, the, the level of support from the UN that they were hoping, the level of, of recognition. You know, I think if it was recognized as an official kind of, you know, peacekeeping body or something by the UN, it would trigger certain funding mechanisms. But they okay. did get, you know, I think they got something like $100 million from Saudi Arabia and the UAE and so forth. So, I mean, there's been a certain... They got more funding than I would have expected. Okay. Okay. Um, now, okay, so that... I, I, I did want to ask you about the, the Sahel Force, but let's go back to Mali because they just recently had an election and this is... Uh, you know the other end of <laughs> the you know the the problems in Mali is to talk about the political side of things. Um, you you wrote a post on your blog recently uh, that was uh, succinctly titled "How Did IBK Win Re-Election?" We're talking about Ib- Ibrahim Boubacar Keita, the the president of Mali, who won in a runoff uh, on uh, earlier this month. Uh, well. I should say, but this is going to air next week. So last month, sorry, let's. Do <laughs> I don't want to tell everybody how the sausage is made, but uh, last month, definitely last month, he won the runoff. Um, talk about how this happened. Uh, talk about Keita, where where he comes from, and uh, he doesn't seem to be that popular, and yet he won very convincingly in the second round. On the other hand. Turnout was extremely low because of the violence and the the threat of attacks on polling places. Talk about the political situation in Mali uh, as it stands now. Sure. So, you know, the I mean, 2012 was really basically a, a mess for Mali, and amid the rebellion, you know, that had started in the north at the beginning of 2012, there was a coup in in Bamako in the capital that overthrew the at the time the outgoing president. So for about, you know, uh, a short time there was military rule and then there was an interim, you know, civilian government and then it wasn't until the summer of, of twenty thirteen that there were elections for a new president. This was seen as part of getting Mali back on track. So Keita, who had been prime minister in the nineteen nineties, who had been in the National Assembly, you know, who was a well known fixture of the Malian political scene, won that election. Um, he's been widely seen as, you know, internationally and, and you know, at least among the, the Malians that I've talked to, you know, seen as, 
as failing during his first term. I mean, obviously, you know, the terrible security problems that we talked about are still there. Um, there's been all kinds of, you know, discussion of, of corruption. There was a, a presidential jet that was purchased in 2014 that caused a major, major scandal because people, uh, you know, accused the, the price of being, you know, said that the price was extremely inflated. Um, you know, he's seen as, as a bit isolated. Uh, he's given his son, you know, major political roles and so forth. So there's been heavy, heavy criticism of him. And you see that a bit in the first round. So Mali has a two-round election. Um, you know, like a lot, like France, and like a lot of other, you know, francophone West African countries. So in the first round, you know, he didn't make the 50% that he would have needed to, to avoid the runoff. Um, but a couple things maybe broke his way in the second round. I mean, one, um, he squared off against the same guy that he had squared off against in the second round in 2013. So I think a lot of Malians felt, and, you know, you mentioned the low turnout, um, a lot of Malians, I think, have come to feel that the political class as a whole is stagnant, um, you know, that it's just kind of the same figures. Even one of the major candidates themselves talks about, you know, basically a game of musical chairs in the country. A lot of these people have been on the on the scene, you know, since the 1990s as politicians, and, and so I think there was just a fair amount of voter apathy. Um, then, and, and here, you know, people, including me, are still sifting through the evidence. You know, there's been some pretty serious accusations about fraud and, and other kinds of, you know, backroom deals and so forth, particularly in the North, you know, so some of the the vote totals in the North were, you know, both for turnout and, and for the percentage that Keita got. Um, the figures seemed, you know, surprisingly high. Uh, and that might seem odd, right, because, you know, if uh, the North has rebelled against the central power and if there's been, you know, severe tension between Keita and some of the Northern leaders, why would they support his re-election, um, you know, it actually seems like even though the status quo is terrible and bad for a lot of ordinary people, that the status quo actually suits various elites in the country fairly well, um, including some of the major politicians and, and rebel commanders and so forth in the north. So, yeah, now you have a situation where this president who I think is actually fairly widely you know, disliked, or, or at least, you know, people feel indifferent to him, where, where he's won another five-year mandate. And so um, the international community was quick to, you know, sort of seal that victory and, and put their stamp of approval on it. Um, but I would suspect that, that privately, you know, a lot of Malian elites and, and elites abroad um, don't really expect a, a higher degree of, of competence from him in the second term. Do you, th I mean, will he survive the second term? I mean, is there a chance that there could be another uh, coup? Or, uh, like, what are the, you know, how, how is there a possibility of political, more political turmoil, uh, you know, post-election? I really couldn't predict, honestly. I mean, when I was there earlier this year during one of the trips, there, you know, some of the people I met were, um, you know, sort of whispering about different, you know, troop movements and things that they had seen and felt kind of, you know, nervous about that. But, you know, then then the, you know, the election went off, uh, obviously with a tremendous amount of violence in the center and so forth, but without, you know, any real talk about a, a coup or something like that. But, you know, I mean, the 2012 coup happened in, in you know, the midst of, of a rebellion and all kinds of you know, real terrible problems in the country. But it's also worth pointing out the 2012 coup was, was by junior officers. Um, and I think junior officers' coups are notoriously, 
you know, difficult to, to predict and anticipate. So, yes, I don't expect one, you know, but it's definitely possible that, yeah. you know, a year from now or two years from now, you know, you could see Captain So-and-so, who nobody's ever heard of, you know, on the TV announcing the Committee for the Salvation of the Republic and the Restoration of Democracy or, you know, these kinds of things that these coup leaders often call themselves. So I wouldn't rule it out. I wouldn't rule it out at all. Talk. Uh, I get. I mean, I. I. I don't want to leave it here because it's. Uh, <laughs> this is a bleak picture that we're painting. Yeah. Here, I think. Um, what What's the? I mean, what would it take to get Molly out of the the cycle of violence to get it on a more stable footing? Is and is it possible either for Keita or if not him for somebody else? Uh, to come along and and you know do something to arrest the uh, the status quo in Mali, which seems to be uh, on the one hand it seems unsustainable for this much kind of violence to be going on uh, and and this much uh, turmoil and yet it's been that way for several years now so it has become in a sense the stable status quo, even though it, yeah. you know, it, paradoxically, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, th- this is one thing I've been thinking about and, and trying to figure out in my own, you know, research on it. I mean, it's, it's how does the status quo benefit various actors and which actors are willing to live with this kind of status quo? I think then that maybe, you know, points to some ways out. If you could answer that question, it would help maybe to identify the kind of pressure points that could get people to to move away from this ultra-violent status quo. I mean, I've been trying to think about my own, you know, sort of, uh, not that it's up to me, you know, to, like, save Mali or something, or, you know, and, I mean, that's, you know, um, in a way that's a, obviously a process that's got to be driven by Malians themselves. I mean, but I think, for me, if I was going to lay out, you know, how to get Mali into a better place. I think it would have to start with, you know, minimizing the harm that various actors are already doing. So I think one big mistake that... I think basically it starts with, with stopping support to militias. So, you know, France has been widely accused, as, as France tries to fight the Islamic State in the Greater Sahara, they've been widely accused of backing um, two of these government-aligned militias in, in kind of northeastern Mali, um, you know, or in the Mali-Niger borderlands. So I think one step would be, you know, ceasing any French support that may exist to those militias because whatever short-term counterterrorism gains they may make, um, I think they unwittingly unleash more of these domino effects. You know, as these government-aligned militias have gone after the Islamic State, they've, you know, uh, seemingly, you know, made various ethnic communities in, in the borderlands, you know, get their backs up, which then fuel, fuels in a communal violence and so forth. So I think that the, the French, you know, again, if they are back in these militias, really need to stop. Then I think the international partners of, of Mali would need to put, you know, extreme pressure on the government to stop backing its own militias. Um, that, to me, seems like the kind of first two steps in, in whatever process. I haven't really gotten beyond that in my own thinking, but it does seem like you know, at the very least, international and domestic harm actors should stop doing things that clearly cause harm, you know, and that clearly cause, you know, more violence. 
after that, I think it would be some convoluted process of, of deal making. I mean, I've, I'm basically a proponent across the board of, of trying to talk to jihadists, but in Mali above all, because I think there's not really anything to lose, right? I mean, there's always the argument that you would lose some kind of, you know, moral high ground or something. But I think, actually, if you make the offer, you know, it could show uh, a certain amount of sincerity even, or, or you know, uh, at least the willingness to, to try to make peace. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, nobody quite knows the intentions or, or the long-term game of, of Iyad Ghali, but if there's any possibility that he would talk, then I think it'd be worth pursuing um, what the mechanics of the deal would look like, you know, could be really complicated and controversial. But those are some of the steps that I would take, I guess, if I were, if I were in Keita's shoes. Well, I'm, that seems like a manageable thing, although I'm sure everybody's got their reasons for backing whatever militia they're backing. But it uh, seems like it would yeah. be easy enough to just stop doing that and you know see what see what the fallout from that is and then take it from there. But, you know, this is why I don't run a country, I guess. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I think it's, you know, I think it's another example of, of how, you know, the, the war on terror or whatever we call it now has, has really distorted things because, you know, counterterrorism priorities have, have really uh, overshadowed other kinds of, of priorities. I think it has a big distorting effect. Is there, uh, to what to what extent, I mean, I know France is kind of the, the most public... Um, outside power involved in Mali. Uh, is, has the United States been, uh, to any extent, been involved with, with the Malian government and, you know, counterterrorism issues? Has there been any uh, training? I know there's been training, you know, like we've trained uh, presidential guards in other parts of Africa, including like Burkina Faso and other countries where um, it hasn't worked out so well. They've wound up participating in coups against the, the elected governments, uh, using their U.S. training, putting their U.S. training to good use. Uh, has any has, has the United States been involved in that way with Mali? Yeah, I mean, so there was, you know, my, my impression is that, that there was a lot more training before the coup in 2012, which triggered, you know, a legal suspension of, you know, because unlike in Egypt or somewhere, it was formally considered a coup by the United States, so it, it did trigger all these kinds of legal restrictions. But, yeah, I mean, you know, there's the, the Trans-Saharan Counterterrorism Partnership that the state and DOD run, um, and Mali's a member country in that. Uh, and when, you know, I mean, assessing the U.S. role anywhere in, in Africa is, is difficult at this point, including in Mali, but, you know, at moments of crisis, sometimes we'll seem that there are more U.S. soldiers on the scene than, than was acknowledged before that. So when there was an attack at a luxury hotel in, in the capital of Mali in, you know, November 2015, I think there were U.S. soldiers that responded to that pretty quickly. Um, there, there have been some weird incidents in Mali. There was, there was an incident where uh, two soldiers were accused of, of strangling to death another soldier that they lived with. You know, there was an incident where some U.S. soldiers and Malian prostitutes got into a car accident. Um, you know, so it does seem that there are maybe more soldiers there than, than has been acknowledged. But no, I mean, France is, you know, France is by far the, the dominant political and, and military, you know, foreign actor in the country. Um, the U.S., I think, logistically, you know, has been maybe even indispensable. You know, like during the, during the French intervention in 2013, there was a lot of, like, U.S., you know, refueling of planes and things like that. But in terms of who's, 
you know, sort of on the ground and, and you know, conducting these counterterrorism operations. I think a lot of times it's, it's the French, you know, far and away in the lead. Can we uh, expect, do you think, to hear now that the the U.S. is arming its drones in Niger and it's building its new drone base, uh, can we expect that there will be maybe some drone strikes in in Mali? Is that going to be part of the, you think that will be part of the the region that that base is covering and the, you know, the sort of uh, uh, new wrinkle in the war on terror, I guess. Yeah, I have, I have no idea, honestly. I mean, I've, I've been surprised in a way that, that we haven't already seen, you know, armed drone strikes. I mean, I would imagine there, there must be people, you know, within the U.S. government, civilians and military, who would be saying, look, you know, if we could, if we could just kill Yad Ghali, this would all go away. If we could just kill this guy or that guy. I think that kind of thinking is... Obviously, I don't agree with that kind of thinking, but there must be people saying that. And so I'm surprised in a way that it hasn't, you know, happened already. But, um, yeah, I mean, they just started, you know, talking about armed drones relatively recently. So I think it's still still to play out. Something to look forward to. Yeah, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> Alex, uh Thank you again for being on. Uh, Alex Thurston is the visiting assistant professor of political science and comparative religion at Miami University of Ohio. He has written two books, Salafism in Nigeria, Islam Preaching and Politics in 2016, and Boko Haram, The History of an African Jihadist Movement in 2017. Uh, He also runs the Sahel blog, sahelblog sahelblog.wordpress.com. I'll put links to these things in the show description. Uh, Alex, is there anything else that you're... uh, plugging that i don't know about no no and <laughs> look thanks thanks so much for having me back really, really a pleasure talking with you as always sure yeah it was uh, it was great to have you and we'll, we'll definitely do it again sometime thanks thanks okay i'm back uh i want to thank alex thurston again for coming on and uh being our first two-time guest. Maybe he'll be our first three-time guest at some point. I don't know. Uh, but I think Molly is a place, as I said to him after we after the interview ended, it's a place that, uh, even more so than Nigeria, a place that people don't hear a lot about, you don't learn a lot about it. Uh, it's not covered very much in the news, uh, and yet it is as complicated and wrapped up in uh, the... the, the patterns of extremism and jihadism uh, as any place on earth so uh, i'm thankful that we were able to have him on to uh, shed a little light and i hope you guys found it uh, interesting and informative until next time uh, as always thanks for listening and i will talk to you soon take care bye-bye